Hi, I'm Claire Riley, and welcome to MS Understood. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in April 2017. At the time, all I wanted to do was get on with my life, put my head in the sand, and privately listen to real people's stories about living with this unpredictable disease. I was deep in denial, terrified about the unknown ahead, and I felt really alone. So, here it is. MS Understood, conversations with real people from all walks of life who live with MS. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that this episode of MS Understood was recorded across multiple lands. I recognise and acknowledge that all of Australia is Aboriginal land and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey, hey, and welcome to today's episode. I wanted to jump in before we get started with today's interview, which I think you'll really like, and just have a bit of a chat about what's been going on for me recently. And yeah, I just thought it might be helpful for some people. So not too long ago, I got my new NDIS plan, actually nearly two months ago for this year. Um, and if you're not in Australia, the NDIS is a super supportive, I find, um, nationally funded scheme, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, where if you have a disability, you're able to get funding to help you uh, live your life in a way that you can, uh, I suppose, live kind of in a inverted comma normal way and give back to society. So the, the idea is, I suppose, that if you get funding, then you'll be able to be a benefit to society. Whereas if you couldn't get the support, then things would deteriorate and then you'd go downhill and the government would be putting more money into you. So, <clears throat> excuse me, this Every year I tend to get or I try and get some um, good quality shoes. My feet, one of my symptoms is that I have painful, numb feet. So I try and get some quality shoes. So last week I was in Geelong. I had a bunch of appointments. Super fun if you saw on my Instagram. Um, I had to do an ultrasound on my urinary tract, uh, which means that you sit and you need to drink a litre of water in... Uh, an hour at least without going to the bathroom which for me and many people in my position is quite a difficult feat um, thankfully they ended up getting me into my appointment 20 minutes early because I was having a really hard time waiting to go to the bathroom uh, so I had to get oh, before that I had to get my eyes checked by an ophthalmologist because of the medication I'm on one of the um Side effects of the medication can be deterioration of your oh, macular degeneration. So I had my eyes checked. Then immediately after that, I had to do this, drink a litre of water, get it, go and get an ultrasound. And then I had an hour break before I was going to go and see an ortho, orthopod. I'm not really sure if that's the correct term, but someone who looks at shoes and orthotics and that sort of thing. Um, so I thought I would go and have a look in our local Rebel Sport, which is for me an easy park from where I was. I could get a park out the front and go in. But because I'd just drunk a litre of water, I needed to go to the bathroom quite frequently. I walked into Rebel Sport and I said, look, I'm really, I'm here to buy some shoes. 
I'm really sorry, but do you guys have a bathroom that customers can use? And they wouldn't let me, which I understand is particularly a thing recently with COVID. Um, but it meant I had to get back in my car and drive to go to a bathroom. So then I drove back, try and get some shoes, but within 15 minutes I had to leave again and I wasn't going to go back. So after all that, it was just a drama and I went and had a look. I was trying to get a foot up, uh, which is a sort of a device like an AFO. A few people I know, um, it's quite common to have an AFO. Um, and I don't know what that stands for. Um, but I was looking at getting a, a device called a foot up, which is quite, um, it's kind of an AFO, but maybe not quite, it's a bit smaller. So it wraps around the lower part of your ankle or like kind of near your ankle bone and has an elastic that clips onto your shoelaces or that area of your shoe and it's elastic and it can help lift up your toes as you're walking because some of my problem is foot drop. So did that and I tell you what I found it so uncomfortable the device so I spoke with my physio and the plan now is just to do more work and more exercises on those muscles and try and get them working so I don't need an AFO anyway it was a big day um, and then but I spoke with my mum who suggested going there's a great um, sports activewear shop I suppose um, on Packington Street in Newtown, Geelong. So if you're in the area, uh, it's called Balance. And I, we went in there, we picked up um, my son from school, mum drove me into Geelong, so it's about 40 minutes. And we went to the shop and they were so helpful and so lovely. And um, I walked out with two pairs of shoes, uh, a V-E-J-A, v -E -J -A, sort of like a sneaker, like a walking casual shoe not a runner because I don't run I never have and I never will actually maybe one day I will um yeah but I recommend definitely going and checking out balance if you're in Geelong because they were so helpful and so lovely and uh yeah the shoes are super comfortable for someone who can't feel their feet um another exciting update that I had this week is I received an a-linker in the mail I um use some of my funding to get an A-linker, thankfully. So um, I got it through the care kiosk um, there in Sydney and you can hire it for a month to see how, how you like it, how it works. And then if you do like it, you can um, pay the full amount and keep, keep it. And I was adamant. I was so excited for this A-linker, this amazing walking bike. If you haven't seen one, um, definitely Google them because I know people where they're, they're really amazing for the, that this device it's a it's definitely kind of a mobility device it's like a tricycle but I tried it the other day and I don't like it I don't like it I'm finding it so much more effort than walking um, if you've got one you've got any tips find me on Instagram at podcast and give me your tips because I found it super difficult to use um yeah so I've got it for a month I'm gonna try it again um I'm gonna keep trying it I'm gonna hope that it works out for me because it looks really cool and yeah I'm really hoping that it will work out for me um also I've got some questions for you guys I have been thinking about this podcast and I'm loving doing interviews but I'm also just not sure if that's where we're all at 
So that's why I thought I'd start with a bit of a chat at the start. Let me know if you like this kind of introduction. Um, again, on MS Understood Podcast at Instagram. Let me know. I've really got, you know, been thinking a lot about where we're at. I love doing the interviews. I love telling people stories in this way. I'm wondering whether we start chatting with some family members or um, specialists who can help or physios or osteos or I don't know. Is there something else that you would like to hear from this kind of platform? I, I've really enjoyed all the interviews that I've done. But I also know that I'm interviewing guests who are kind of similar to me in my stage of life and and who I am, which is um, not the stories, not all the stories that I want to be sharing. I want to make sure that we've got really good representation and and a story that everyone can relate to. So if you know of anyone who is a bit out of the box, who has MS, who has had it for a long time or isn't kind of one of the guests that we've had or you're one of these people who you'd love to tell your story can you yeah send me a message on ms understood podcast send uh, this episode to your friend who you're keen to have interviewed or anything like that please let me know if you've got any suggestions because i really love this platform and i really want to keep keep going with it um i'm just yeah, feeling like we could mix it up a little bit. So let me know what you're thinking, radio. Today, we are going to hear from Yvette. Now, Yvette was diagnosed with MS over 25 years ago. And in this episode, we chat a lot about um, how things have changed in that 25 years with medications and support and things like that. We talk about the things that are really important and Yvette particularly talks about, you know, work versus grandkids and kids and that sort of thing. We talked a lot about the NDIS. Um, she's, well, you'll find out. She's only just applied for it. Um, and it's and we talk about um, feeling like we're not necessarily entitled because we don't look disabled. It's a really tricky one. Um I found this chat super beneficial because I'm still relatively newly diagnosed, you know, four years um, in April, just gone and looking into the future, we never know what's coming. So I really enjoyed this interview and I really hope that it helps or you get something out of it. So yeah, let me know what you think. Check me out on Instagram at msunderstoodpodcast or claire.riley and I really hope you enjoy it. Hi, Yvette. Thank you so much for joining us on the MS Understood podcast today. How are you going? I'm, I'm doing okay today. Thanks for having me. No, no, thank you so much. I think we just had a little quick chat about you've been diagnosed for quite some time and I think it's going to be a really nice um, difference to a lot of the other episodes. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate you reaching out and being willing to share your story. I'm happy to share it. It's a long story. Yeah. Well, we might just get stuck in. So I like to ask everyone, um, as you probably know, everyone's diagnosis story. So can you tell us yours? Sure. Um, 1995 is a long time ago, um, but it feels very recent to me. Um, two, two significant things happened for us in 1995. We got access to the internet. And um, I started my journey 
with MS. So um, I had a run of bad luck. My mother said my warranty ran out. I was uh, 32 and in July I had my appendix out. In August I had my gallbladder out and in September I got my first dose or, or episode of um, optic neuritis. And I thought I just had a bit of a funny eye thing happening and went to see the doctor and they said, you've got a bit of a funny eye thing happening, go and see the ophthalmologist. So I went and saw him and he said, oh, you've got optic neuritis. He did all these tests and um, come back and see me, you know, next week. And I didn't think terribly much of it. Um, and that night I went to um, a function and I was talking to a friend who was a GP and I said, oh, I've got this funny thing called optic neuritis and her face just dropped. And she said, did anybody mention multiple sclerosis? And I'm like, why would they mention that? And she told me why they might mention that. And so I went away and um, did a little bit of yahooing because we didn't have Google yet. Um, and the only place I could find any reference to optic neuritis was in the same sentence as MS, which I thought was interesting. So I went back to see him the following week and I said, hey, so tell me about MS. And he said, oh, you know about that. Um, so we had a conversation and he says, oh, we can't diagnose um, just with one episode it's it's just a standalone thing you need to have two episodes in two different parts of the body at two distinct periods in time um go away don't worry about it this will get better and it did about six weeks later I had my vision fully functioning again and I sort of just went away thinking oh well you know we'll see what happens can I 12 ask, months later, yeah. Sorry, with the optic neuritis 25 years ago, were you given steroids or any kind of treatment for that? No, and there was no mention of doing so. Um, it was really very, um, very low-key, I guess. It wasn't presented to me as something of, of concern. Um, very, very stark difference to how I think it would be managed now. Um, so I got it again a year later in the same eye, um, saw him again, and that time he gave me some oral um, steroid treatment and did a little bit of muttering. But I think he might have seen sent me to a neurologist that time and they sent me for a CT scan to check if I had a brain tumour. So they really were, like, not focusing um, on a big MS. I, however, started to think, hmm, okay. And so I started to look after my health from a perspective that I may very well have MS. So I started thinking about how I ate and what I ate and that kind of thing. And what sort of things and then did I you change in terms of your diet then? Sorry. What sort of change you said you started well, thinking I did a lot about of, your health? Yep. So I started doing a lot of reading, um, books from the library, and I found the Swank diet, which was um, the, I guess, the inspiration for the overcoming MS diet that we have these days. And so I sort of did that in a modified way. I added in um, olive oil, walnuts, those sort of um, good fats, which weren't really talked about 
I think it was 40 years earlier, so that's like 60, 70 years ago now. So they weren't really um, focused on that. They were focused on not saturated fats um, and having polyunsaturated fats. So I guess by that time we knew more about the um, monosaturated fats, so I, I had a bit of a more of that perspective. And I lost several kilos and felt really healthy enough. At worst-case scenario, I'll be a very old person that has MS, but I won't have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was sort of my perspective. And then I had a third episode of optic neuritis, same eye. This time it didn't fully come back. So I, I ended up with a very mild deficit, but I'd had above-average vision to begin with, so it was still entirely functional. And I still have that little slight difference now. But, of course, that was the same part of the body again, so it still didn't count. And so I think we got to 2000 and I got in the shower and the bottom of my foot felt funny. And I didn't think too much of it because, you know, things like that happen. But then more of my foot felt funny as the day went on and um, I realised that I couldn't feel it properly. And at that point, I went to see the doctor. And it was almost a little bit exciting because this was a different part of the body. And suddenly we could talk about MS. Um, and I think in between I'd had my first MRI along the way, maybe after the third lot of optic neuritis, and I had to pay for it privately. And that cost me $500. And it was inconclusive. Um, so this time I went for an MRI and it came back. There were lesions and I officially got diagnosed. So I was told I had very mild MS. Yeah, wow. And I imagine, you know, like you said, there's no Google. You're not doing what a lot of us are doing now and, and Googling those was there um, in Australia, and we do have a lot of kind of international listeners, but we've got quite a supportive MS um, society that, um, you know, with yeah. that, did you have support in that sort of way? Absolutely, yeah. Um, before we had social media, we had um, discussion boards and forums, and they were actually really useful. A lot of them were US-based because... Um, just population numbers, there were more of them. Um, I contacted the MS Society, as it was called at the time, and had a little bit of information from them. I think I started getting their magazine, um, but not a lot of, um, I guess, practical support. They didn't offer me a lot of things. That sort of all came later. Um, and I found a couple of really good books that I found useful. Um, and so I was sort of just floating along relatively okay. I think that was June. And then as we were approaching September, I always remember because the Sydney Olympics were on, um, I got up to go to work one day. By this stage, I was working full-time five and a half days a week, an hour commute. Um, had three kids at three different levels of school, Um I was caring for my elderly father. I was doing lots of volunteer work. And one day I fell asleep in the car 
waiting for my husband to come and drive me to work. We used to drive to work together. Um, so I went back to bed and six weeks later I extended my sick leave and six weeks after that I resigned from work because I was just so entirely wiped out I couldn't I couldn't do anything. Wow. Um, I stopped everything I was able to do. I was just like a person living in bed um, that the children visited and um I I uh, I pull myself out of bed to the desktop computer a couple of times a day to you know connect with people, but I I was really just non-functional, and I decided that something had to give, and uh, working full time in a retail environment in a management position was something that had to give. Yeah, wow. And so, so that was I then was able to just be me. Yep. Wow, so that's um, pretty soon after your diagnosis. So at that point, your only symptoms really yep. by the sounds of things had been the object neuritis and the feeling in the bottom of your yep. foot and all of a sudden you just got yep. this crushing fatigue. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. So there were no, no um, additional symptoms at that time. It was just... Um, I, it's very hard to describe fatigue. People say, oh, yeah, I get that. I get really tired. It's a different fatigue. The closest I can find is that first trimester pregnancy fatigue. Um, and it's that just sheer body heaviness. You, you can't, you just can't. It's like walking through mud. Um, and it doesn't matter how much you want to do the thing. You can't. So your it overrides your your will, and um, it's not about getting some extra sleep. It's not about well, you're doing too much. Um, over the years, I've had lots of people say, "Well, you just need to rest more," um, but that's not it. It's not. There's no restorative aspect um, to the fatigue that comes with MS. You just have to wait it out. Did you start? So then. Um, I was taking um, betaferon at that time. I started. I decided to um, start to, to take some medication, and I started to inject myself every second day. And um, I did that for four years. So two thousand and four, I chose to stop that because I was in the minority of people that got flu-like symptoms every time I did the injection. So I'd have a day of feeling just dreadful and then I'd inject again and then I'd have a day of feeling dreadful. And I did that for four years and, you know, lived my life around it and then I just decided I hadn't had any indicators, um, you know, odd bits of numbness and, and all of that sort of thing, sensory weirdness, but nothing. It seemed to me that the cure was worse than the condition at that point. So I chose to stop medication um, and um, went, went on with, you know, vaguely looking after myself. I returned to work in a different role um, 2007 and muddled along okay. You know, I'd have days where I couldn't really do a lot, but I was the only person in the workplace that I could control and pace my work 
through the day and it was something I was really enjoying doing. So, you know, I was um, comfortable with my ability to sort of manage my health through lifestyle, I guess, choices. Um, and then um, 2013, I had my first granddaughter and oh. I decided that um, work didn't seem so important anymore. So I stopped working at that point and got terribly, terribly busy. Um, I am a breastfeeding counsellor and I'm a baby-wearing educator and I started a natural parenting group and I started doing all of these things alongside my daughter and, you know, life was okay. It was busy but it was manageable and I was able to sort of jiggle things as I needed to. And then my second granddaughter was born in 2016, which was lovely, and she was three days old and I was staying with them to help out and I got out of bed one day and the bottom of my foot felt funny. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, one of those things and that's okay. And over the next three days it was creeping up my legs and um, eventually it stopped around my belly button. Um, but I got straight on to seeing the neurologist and he um, got me on some IV steroids. And uh, that was about six weeks or so before it sort of came back down again. It's left me with areas of my feet and legs that I can't feel to touch. Um, so at that point I decided to revisit medication and I started taking Galenia which was the one for all medication that they promised me way off in the future would be there one day. And so I've been on that now for four years and um, haven't had any more major relapses, just the, the normal everyday, can't feel bits of my body and can't think, can't remember, can't um, uh just, the, just what I consider to be your normal everyday MS um, and hoping that the medication has made a difference. They uh, found a lesion on my spinal cord that um, made sense for the area of my body and I had uh, MRI six months ago and everything was still the same. So no new lesions but none had gone. So you've, and, you've been diagnosed for 25 years. I imagine things have changed yeah. a bit. Do you still or have you always, I see my neurologist twice a year. Do you, Have you always just kind of had those regular appointments? Have things changed in terms of obviously medications have changed? Um, yeah, I've had uh, three neurologists. Um, I'm really happy with the one that I've got now. I've been seeing him um 10 years, um, but he has a come-and-see-me-if-you-need-to approach to it. So I probably see him every couple of years. He sends me in for um, MRI if we feel like I need it um, and basically just lets me gauge for myself uh, any need to go and see him. It's more touching-based because there's nothing more he can do at this stage. Um, I'm on the medication. The medication's not causing any problems. My GP monitors, you know, my blood levels and all of that sort of thing. Um, so we just 
but just take it as it happens. And you mentioned earlier that you started looking at the swank diet before you were officially diagnosed. Are you still sort of following that way of lifestyle? Yeah, yeah. I fell off the wagon quite a bit. Um, I got busy with other things and, you know, I guess I didn't have my eye on the ball quite so much. Two years ago, um, a routine blood test showed that I had high cholesterol for the first time ever. I think my GP was just as shocked as I was. Um, and so I thought, okay, hang on. I thought I had a good diet. I thought I was doing the right eating. Um, and so I, I started paying better attention. And I was eating all the right foods, but I was eating too much of everything. Um, so I, I went back to being more aware of what I was eating and looking at portion sizes and everything. And I lost uh, 16 kilos and um, my cholesterol's better. And um, I'm back, I, I would say I'm back on track with being conscious and aware of the foods I eat. So um, I don't go out of my way to eat red meat. So if someone serves me red meat, if I'm there, I'll, I'll eat it. So I'm um, not vegetarian, but I, I eat a lot of fish. So fish, um, fruit, veggies, grains, some dairy because I went dairy-free for a long time and I'm hoping to live for another 30 or 40 years and the thought of that without cheese, <laughs> um, without chocolate, not really, you know, I, I think quality of life is just as important. So I eat cheese and I eat chocolate I eat yogurt and I balance that with um, all the things I, I don't eat and I have a lot of um, very happy, good cholesterol. Um, markets so um, we figure we're doing something right there yeah. and I um, I got serious again about exercise um, and I was doing really really well I started um, back in the warm water pool um, I was doing great and I, I got really really brave and I went upstairs to the gym which was very foreign very strange very scary but I, I did it and that was November 2019, and I was doing great all the way through summer. I was in the gym several times a week. I was in the pool nearly every day, and then we got to March 2020, and everything shut. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I walked, I walked and I walked and I walked. I walked in my five-kilometre safe zone that I was allowed to walk, and I walked every day through lockdown. Yeah, I think most of the world started. And now I'm back in the pool and back in the gym. Yeah, great. great. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like I'm back where I was 12 months ago. Well, 14 months ago, wherever we're up to now. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at physically at the moment. Yeah, great. And how do your symptoms show up now? Do you still have that fatigue that you had for those kind of 12 weeks? Do you... Yep. Um, you still, I know you said you still have numbness and a bit of effect in your eye, um, but I suppose yep. the fatigue yep. for me is not something that I experience. And so for me, even it's hard to understand. Is it something you absolutely. still have to manage? And absolutely. And it's something I can't always recognise. Sometimes I'm too distracted to listen to my body 
and it's it's telling me very clearly but i'm i'm batting it aside and i'm i'm pushing through because i want to be doing what i'm doing and it's like i'm using up all my credit and then tomorrow morning i get up and my body says no and so it doesn't matter what i'd planned um what i wanted to do i'm not doing it that day i'm going to have a bad day um so that's about acceptance um I'm my own worst enemy. I think most of the people that I've ever met that have MS seem to be type A personalities, and I don't know whether that's cause and effect or whether all the other people are wisely staying at home and not overachieving. Um, but everybody I've ever ever um, connected with has just really been focused and busy. Um, so I'm in bed for at least 12 hours every day. Um, I'm not asleep the whole time because I have chronic insomnia. Um, my my sleep tracker tells me I average about three to four hours sleep each night, but I'm resting physically for 12 hours a day. I probably have two days at home each week where I do very little. Um, and there's a lot I don't do. People see what I do, but they don't see what I don't do, um, which has led me to accept where I'm at in life and I've just applied for the NDIS to assist me in all the things that I don't do I and to make it easier ask, for me to do the things I do. I was just going to ask, we spoke very briefly before so we that started was a, recording yep. about you applying for NDIS and for me it's been a life changer. Um, I've been on it for, for just into my second year now and the things that I suppose that you were saying that you don't do is I don't clean my house because yes, that is yes. not something that I Neither need to do. Neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so this was a very big step to take. This is the biggest step since um, I applied for a disabled permit for the car which I think now must be about uh, five years or so ago, every single time I get out of my car, I think, is this the time somebody's going to come and accuse me of rotting the system? And so um, I, intellectually I know this is something I'm completely entitled to, but um, mentally, like, um, at that other level, I'm in denial that that's about me. And so um, I wasn't even aware that I would qualify for something like the NDIS. Nobody had ever mentioned it to me in, in, I think it's been going for five years now, never did anyone suggest that that was something I would be eligible for. I thought it was for those, you know, those people who are really disabled, um, not me because I'm only, you know, a little bit. I don't look sick as I'm told um and i contacted the ms society about the time last year to check whether being on an immune suppressing medication in a pandemic was a good idea and um i was able to have that conversation with the ms nurse and she said now is there anything else that we can do for you and i was like really me um and uh <laughs> wow okay she said now are you on the ndis and i said 
oh, no, no, I'm not like, that's that's not me. And she said, have you applied for it? And I said, oh, no, no, no. And she said, well, you won't know if that's me unless you apply for it. And I thought, well, that's an interesting perspective. So she connected me up with, I think she's the engagement coordinator. And so this is about June last year. And I don't recommend um, trying to go through the hurdles of applying for the NDIS in a pandemic. Um, <laughs> the ability to, to connect with all your health professionals and get all the reports and things that you need is extra complex um, when you're too scared to actually go anywhere um, in case you uh, the person in front of you is infected. Um, living most of 2020 in lockdown, um, wearing masks everywhere that I went. I haven't been in a shop um, for over 12 months. Um, except for the chemist on the occasions I've had to go in and I could find a way around that. Um, so all of my social engagements have been outdoors. So going indoors to see doctors for a routine necessary thing felt really, you know, I could put that on the back burner. So we've we've had a bit of a catch-up in 2021 and we've just sent off the paperwork this week. So that was really confronting because... I focus on what I can achieve and the good things and applying for the NDIS is very real. It's very worst-case scenario and it highlights the things you can't do. And then they, they write that all out on a piece of paper and you read it and you have this realisation that you are the subject of this report. And they're talking about your inability to innately function. And that was that was a challenge to, to go down that pathway. However, having a look at all the things that they said they can bear, um, therefore do. So I'm not very good at maintaining my home. I can't vacuum. I can't mop. I can't get the cobwebs out of the, the corners. You know, I can't do those big movements. Um, I have an adult son living at home and I have a husband that works very long hours and is often away for work. Um, so I rely quite heavily on my son. But his uh, perspective on what needs to be done around the house can be very different mm. to mine. My daughter has three children. She has enough trouble managing her own home. So, you know, I do more to help support her than she's able to do to support me. So accepting that I could actually reach out and get that kind of help will reduce some of my mental load, which is there all the time thinking about what I need to be doing, what I should be doing, what I'm not doing. And that's very draining. And sometimes that adds to the fatigue, it adds to the depression, it adds to the brain fog. And so if I can outsource some of those things, I can focus in more on self-care. And that's the way I'm looking at it. But it's still, it's a big step. Oh, absolutely. And I think, like you said, it's really important for people who I've spoken with quite a few people who either didn't know that they could apply or just haven't applied because like you, they just didn't think it would be for them. I applied because the amount of therapies that I do, we couldn't afford yeah. for me to do yeah. that. 
Um, Absolutely. But if you don't apply, you don't know if it's going to work for you. And if all you need out of it is some physio and a cleaner, then brilliant. You know, why not get that support? And if you yep. need heaps more than that, then get that too yep. because that's and, what and it's there for. Uh, you know, I, I think the word entitlement comes into our brain and we think, oh, but I'm not entitled to that. Why? 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 Because I'm not in a wheelchair, because I'm not, I don't need somebody to come in and shower me and dress me. I can dress myself, but not if I'm unable to do the dirty washing and turn it into clean clothes to wear. I can eat, but not if I don't have the mental energy to to plan and prepare a meal. Not if I can't stand at the kitchen bench and chop up the vegetables so I just have toast instead. And so being able to, I guess, compensate for what you can't do is not the same as um, having it done the way it needs to be by somebody else. I, I've i got quite yep. a selfish question. So I was diagnosed when my son okay. was maybe oh, two and a half or three, and I remember you yep. saying your, um, you were diagnosed with yep. one of your children with three. Yep. How yep. did they go through their lives? They're grown now. You've got grandkids. Particularly in that time when you were really fatigued and you weren't getting out yep. of bed, how did you manage yep your children I suppose and how did they grow up with the idea of you having it yeah um getting to go through the whole thing again with grandchildren has been really interesting um because I've had to explain it to a second generation at a similar age so I think my children were um I think four eight and twelve thirteen um so, you know, we had kinder, we had primary school, we had high school. This was not a sensible time for me to get MS. Um, and uh, I had to explain to them in a way that each of them could understand without frightening them. And um, then I had to sort of keep reminding them over the years because... It becomes part of the background. And so, you know, I've just got MS. I've always got MS. It's there whether they think about it or not. And sometimes I do have to um, gently remind them even now that, you know, it's because of the MS, not that I choose to do or not do it. I, I can't. Um, with the grandchildren, I found that um, it's a bit easier for them to understand because the the technology that they live in, um, the four-year-old understands that my charger doesn't always charge properly, so I need to have a big rest so my body can charge. Um, that would have been really useful <laughs> to explain it that way in 1995. Um, sometimes they've had to um, not have things happen because I can't make them happen. When I am in bed, often they would come and hang out with me. So it's become um, a positive experience for all of us um, to sort of chill and chat. Um, the upside is when I'm resting, there's nothing else I'm focused on. Um, so 
I can sit and chat and I can listen and share life without distraction. So in some ways, I think it made us all very close. Um, and uh, now I'm just sort of reliving that. The, the girls have weekly sleepovers and we do a lot of hanging out in bed. You know? So we draw together and we do lots of stories together and we'll play board games and puzzles in bed just as much as we do things um, outdoors and elsewhere. So they've, they've got a pretty good understanding and I think... Um, I think it's okay. I don't think my kids have been, um, I don't think it's been detrimental to my children to have grown up with a mother with MS, even though I thought it would be, thankfully. <laughs> um, there's a lot that didn't happen and a lot that um couldn't happen because of financial impacts. Um, I've not been entitled to disability payments because my husband is employed, but that doesn't mean that he has this huge income that allows us to live you know, a life of luxury. So we're sort of just hovering just above, um, you know, where I would be entitled to support. So there's stuff that's not been able to happen because I'm not employed. Um, and then when I was employed, there were things that couldn't happen because I was exhausted. Um, so finding that balance has been my life's work. <laughs> um, and, and being able to accept what you can't do is hard. Yeah, definitely. And, um, um, yeah. I have two questions I'd like I think to it's ask. Okay. I think it's okay. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, I have two questions I love to ask everyone at the end of the episode. What is the best thing to have happened to you because of your MS? You know, it's, it's a funny question, isn't it? Because other people couldn't imagine there'd be anything positive. Um, for me, it's being able to understand that all the other stuff doesn't actually matter if you don't think about your physical and mental health. And I've been able to prioritise that for 25 years. Before that, I was too busy growing babies. I, I had my first child when I was 20. Um, so, you know, I was, I was young and then I was a mother and then I was thinking about career and, I went back to work the same month I had the first episode of Optic Neuritis. Um, so suddenly I was thinking about my health and everything I've done since then has been through the lens of thinking about my health. The times where I've lost focus on that have been the times that I've crashed. So it always brings me back to having to think about looking after myself before I look after anything else and I think a lot of people don't get to have that until they reach the end of life and suddenly realize that all those other things that seem terribly terribly important have no importance at all and 
their health and their ability to function is all that matters. And so I think we have the the blessing of finding that out earlier in life, if it's a blessing. And the last question is, what is something you tell people to make MS more understood? Nobody looks like they have MS. There's not, there's not a, a typical representation of people with MS. People with MS look just like everybody else. Um, and that means that some of them use wheelchairs and mobility aids. A lot of them don't. And um, we've got to get away from that stereotype of people with MS need pity and it's very sad and clearly they're on a pathway to, you know, nothing. Um, most people with MS look like they don't have MS um, and we've just got to break that, that perception um, because it's not, it's not helpful to the majority of people who have signs and symptoms that others can't see, which can be dismissed because they don't seem significant enough to really be MS. And I think that's that's a message that's changing, but it's still got a long way to go. Definitely. Thank you so much, Yvette, for sharing your story today. I know I found it really helpful and I hope someone else does too. I just wish that this had been around 25 years ago. Can you imagine how different my journey would have been oh, um, if I'd been able to reach out immediately to people yeah. and to hear other people's stories? And, um, you know, the books that I was reading in 1995 were still talking about them putting people in hot baths to diagnose MS. Wow. And if you couldn't get out of the bath, congratulations, you've got MS. So that was still in the books I was reading and there was no treatment. So the books were telling me we have no treatment for MS. Wow. And, yeah, that was really, you know, I didn't know anybody with MS. My great aunt had it, um, but she died in the 70s. You know, this was not something I'd, I'd seen or known people with. So to be confronted with that kind of image the first time you reach out and, and you know, do some research is horrifying. You know, I, I needed to see all the, the people who were managing their life fine and to hear the positive stories and, and to see that this wasn't the end of my life. It was just a turning point in my life that actually had really good aspects to it as well. Yeah, well, I'm glad that we can share these stories now. A huge thank you to Yvette for sharing her story on the MS Understood podcast today. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. You can find me at Claire.Riley or MS Understood podcast on Instagram. The best thing you can do to support this podcast is click follow on Spotify, subscribe on your other podcast listening platforms and leave a review. This helps other people to find the podcast. Thanks again for listening and please share this episode with someone you think it might help.